Welcome to Tube Talk, the show dedicated to helping you become a better video creator so you can get more views, subscribers, and build your audience. Brought to you by vidIQ. Download for free at vidIQ.com. Oh, yeah! Welcome back to another episode of Tube Talk presented by vidIQ. I am your host, Viper, the man about tech. Executive producer of social media here at the IQ. Hey, let me start off this podcast by doing a couple of Twitter shout outs. I tell you guys every week, or I attempt to tell you guys every week that if you want me to potentially shout you out on the podcast to tweet at vidIQ, make sure you're using the hashtag TubeTalk so I can locate the tweet quickly. And once you do that, I can shout you out. So shout out to my man, John Scott who listened to Tube Talk podcast and vidIQ content so much, he made a song out of how we've been telling people to do less intros on your video. He made a natural song out of it, which is hilarious. You should go follow him on Twitter at HeyJohnScott. Very funny, John. I appreciate that. Also, shout out to Tim from Wells, who uh, found out that I shouted him out on a previous podcast. Again, as I tell you guys, if you do tweet at us, you could get shouted out on the podcast. So Tim from Wells, yes, I see you out there on the Twitter space. So appreciate you supporting the podcast, dude. Thank you. So this week, we got the man himself from Think Media, founder Sean Cannell is coming on the podcast in a couple of minutes to talk about recent changes with YouTube and different things like that and how he went about building his Think Media team. But before we get to Sean Cannell, I just want to talk to you guys about what are the paths to success on YouTube. So I was having a talk in a Twitter face earlier today with my man, Roberto Blake, and we were talking about creator wanting to feel passionate or have that fiery passion about what they're doing on YouTube. And that's all good and well. But sometimes if you want to make it to the top or have great success on YouTube, you have to take the path of things or something that you might be less passionate about. And he brought up an excellent point that I want to talk about here real quick on the podcast. How many people you know, possibly yourself included, who are currently working a nine to five job that you're probably not all that passionate about, but you still do it to a level of success that gets you paid every pay period and it brings you a living. So when we talk about taking a path to something that you're less passionate about on YouTube, it's something similar. You can still achieve YouTube success doing something that you might be slightly less passionate about, but you have an authority in and you can use that knowledge that you have to make it to the top of YouTube if you're willing to take that path. Now, that might not sound all that glamorous, but sometimes you could take that path of your left passion to get you to a point where you can do the thing that you are more passionate about. It might not be on YouTube, but taking that path can get you to greater height if you're willing to go down that road. So that's what I want to talk to you all about real quick. Is don't be afraid to experiment with all avenues. Like there are a bunch of different things that you can do on YouTube. Maybe you're trying something or you're doing something right now on YouTube, but you're not finding much success with, but you have this other avenue over here about something that you might be slightly less passionate about, but you might have more authority and there might be less competition over there in that path. So maybe you try doing that and you might have greater success. So again, as I tell you guys all the time, this is a marathon, not a sprint. There are no shortcuts to achieving YouTube success. It is a grind. I've been doing it for almost five years now and I can speak from personal experience that this is definitely a grind, but you can have success. I've had success. I'm talking to you all right now on this podcast because of what I've done in the past five years and I don't have the biggest following on YouTube, but I've still been putting the work for the past five years and it's led to a successful moment for me, including talking to you right here, right now on this podcast. So if I can do it and if I'm living it, you can definitely go out there and do it too. But you have to be willing to experiment and try 
multiple avenues if you're not successful in what you're doing right now. Try something different. See if there's something else out there that you can get yourself into and maybe you'll have more success down the road. Let's travel. But with that out the way, let's go ahead and bring my man Sean Cattle in here and let's roll to the podcast. Welcome back to Tube Talk presented by VidIQ. And this week we have a very special guest. He is the founder of Think Media, YouTube educator, creator, podcaster, all the things. Mr. Sean Cannell is in the building. What's up, Sean? How you doing, sir? Piper, I am so fired up to be with you today and grateful. And dad of my second boy on day 42 at the time of recording, I have a second boy a month and 12 days old. And so I'm trying to do my best to get sleep, keep my sanity together and keep crushing it on this YouTube thing. Congratulations on the birth of your second child, man. I know it must be an amazing feeling being a father once again and all that good with that, man. So congrats to you. I appreciate that. So you've talked us. we've had you on our live stream many times. I don't need to go through your whole origin story and all that good stuff. So I think today a good point to start with you is all the recent changes that have been going on with YouTube. So let's start with the announcement that they made about what three or four weeks ago now with the, the new tier of monetization that YouTube is now offering for short creators. For those of y'all, I mean, if you listen to the podcast, you already know where I'm going with this. But for those of y'all who have been on the rock for a while, about three or four weeks ago, YouTube made an announcement that they're going to give short creators a path into the YouTube partner program. So as it's currently constructed, you have to have 1,000 subscribers and 4,000 hours of watch time to get into the YouTube partner program. Right now, short content and short views and watch time, that does not count towards the 4,000 hours. However, a few weeks ago, YouTube made the announcement that in addition to the current standard, the 1,000 subscribers, 4,000 hours of watch time, now if you have 1,000 subscribers and 10 million views within a 90-day period as a short creator, short creator can also now be a part of the YouTube Partner Program if they meet that requirement, those thresholds. So, Mr. Cannell, just curious to get your thoughts on the recent news coming out of YouTube as it relates to short creators being able to monetize their content. Yeah, I think YouTube embracing monetization in shorts is a signal of their greater plans of just being committed to vertical video. And I think YouTube is clearly, we know this, wanting to compete with TikTok and Instagram Reels and Facebook Reels and attention to short form video, vertical video. And this is a big move to, I think, gather the enrollment of new creators and established creators in a commitment of monetization that they have been historically known for. You know, Twitch game streamers have left Twitch to YouTube because of the opportunity. I think other creators have left other platforms because YouTube's monetization opportunity is superior. And this play is a competitive move. Now, I also think it's not without some questions. I know some creators have asked, okay, if we get 45% and YouTube gets 55%, that's a little bit less than a normal ad revenue split, it appears. And also, if music labels are involved in this, which they are, they're taking a cut first. And so it's like the creator is getting the last dip out of the cookie jar, it would seem. If the music label gets paid, YouTube gets paid, the creator gets what's you know paid less. I understand that criticism, but I also come from an attitude of gratitude in the sense of like, hey, I'm grateful to get something. This is a free platform. Freely, anyone can upload content. And it's cool to have this chance of monetization. If you do the math on 10 million views, even if those shorts are being viewed at 30 seconds each, and maybe they could be much shorter than that, that's way more than 4,000 hours of watch time. And it's in a shorter time frame. It's not 12 months and it's in 90 days. 
So while certainly we are seeing creators all the time breaking out with their shorts content, that is no easy feat. So I don't know which one is easier, Viper, do you think? Is it easier to get 4,000 hours of watch time on normal content in a year? Or is it easier to get 10 million views in 90 days on shorts content? I think it's an interesting question. That is an interesting question. And I think, as you alluded to, when you do the math on 10 million views in 90 days, that is more than trying to get 4,000 hours of watch time. And I think personally, it will probably be easier for most creators to go for the 4,000 hours of watch time because live streaming is a cheat code. I know personally, I live stream a lot and that helped me get monetized back when I was trying to get my channel monetized a couple of years ago. So with live streaming being out there and then you having your regular long form videos, I think if you combine that with live streaming, you can definitely hit that 4,000 hours easier than trying to get 10 million views for short. But there are short creators out there who are already getting it done and they're going to get it done once the program goes live next year. The thing that kind of bothers me, Sean, is how creators all the time, they like to poo-poo the changes that YouTube makes if it doesn't directly benefit them as a creator. But what we have to realize is that YouTube is operating at a global platform scale. You're talking about millions of creators on the platform. So every decision that YouTube makes, they have to make with the totality of creators in mind. They just can't make a decision for one group of creators because the decision that they make for that group of creators might uh, harm another group of creators. So they have to do what's best for the majority of creators on the platform, and they're trying to do the best that they can. So I guess through the data that they've accumulated as it relates to shorts over the two years that we've had YouTube short content, they made the decision that, all right, if we see that it's attainable for most short creators or a lot of short creators to reach 10 million views in 90 days, then that's where we are. Yeah, and I, I agree with you on the side of shorts creators, those committed to creating shorts content. The opportunity is massive and a lot of views can be had. If you study the top 50 channels at any given time right now, there is just this massive surge of shorts channels in the top 50. I mean, it might be 50%. I'm kind of scrolling through it right now. It's really close to 50-50 with so many new channels that are jumping on that list. And so, yeah, it's, it's something to pay attention to. Shorts is a, is a major wave. I think vertical video is a major wave that absolutely should not be ignored by serious creators. Absolutely. And if you are a new creator on YouTube and you're trying to grow fast, short is the vehicle to hop on right now. I mean, we're talking about 30 billion short views a month right now, I think, what I heard recently. So YouTube is heavily pushing short. So while it might seem like a gargantuan task to hit 10 million in 90 days, the way that YouTube is heavily pushing short. I mean, these days when I open up the YouTube mobile app, I'm getting smacked in the face with shorts. It's not long form videos. It's not a feed. It's literally a short form video smacking me in the face. So YouTube is really hammering shorts home really hard and they're pushing them really, really hard. And the virality of a short, the potential for that virality is a lot higher than that for a long form video. So between how YouTube is pushing them heavily and that virality being a lot higher, I think it's probably going to be a lot more doable for creators than they think right now to get that 10 million views in 90 days. 100%. And there was the, of course, big announcement back at VidCon where Todd B announced that shorts and long form were really not talking and not recommending each other. Right. Followed up a couple of weeks, he said that conversation basically in the algorithm has begun. And he recently communicated as well that more roads or channels of short form being a recommendation to your long form or vice versa is happening. So I think what we're looking at is the evolution of this whole thing. That's why I would say bet on shorts. It may not be really working right now. It may not be fully 
making sense in terms of how it ties to your larger strategy. This is not a static product from YouTube. It's not like it's just what it is, right? It's going to continue to be iterations, updates. And we, without a doubt, know that YouTube is committed to it. And so from that end, I think that learning shorts form communication, posting short form content, investing in YouTube shorts, learning YouTube shorts, because I think the downside to your point is if you want to grow fast, yes, shorts is a good way to do it. But my question is how quality are those viewers or will they be interested in anything that's not shorts? Mm. And so, you know, at Think Media, we are always thinking about what's the bigger strategy? What's the bigger vision? Views alone are not the only measurement of success. In fact, it might not be a very good measurement of success if it doesn't tie into a bigger vision, a long-term vision, a bigger business model. What's the difference you want to make? Are you in a niche that has a lot of longevity to it? A lot of deeper strategic questions that should be incorporated in when thinking about your content strategy, short form and long form and live stream all together. You know, what exactly is your end goal and how are you working towards that? I am glad that you brought that up, that bridge between short form and long form and the subscribers that you gain from short, potentially not being interested in your long form content. So on the Think Media channel, I see that you guys have been experimenting with short for a while now. So I'm curious, within the last month or so, have you seen that bridge take place on your channel, whereas your short viewers are being suggested to your long form? Or how is that going for you on the Think Media channel? So when I look at our short strategy, here's what it's been. First of all, we've been posting roughly two shorts a week. Mm -hmm. Currently, we do post daily regular YouTube videos on Monday through Friday, more or less. Okay. And... We post two shorts on the weekend, Saturday and Sunday. And we've been pretty consistent with that. In fact, if I look over the last year, that really started in April. So it's been, you know, six months of testing this out. And when I look at my analytics in regards to shorts, the first way I like to judge it is in the last year, shorts alone have grown our channel by 29,000 subscribers. We've gotten almost 10 million views, and that's up 503%. We were posting shorts last year. And so one of the reasons it's up so much was because we posted like four shorts last year, and this year we're posting two a week. So if you post more videos, you get more views, typically as a rule. The traffic sources, though, is by far the shorts feed, 82.1%. I don't know, unless you know of a way, to determine if that has anything to do with subscribers or somebody that's watched long form or not. That's our biggest one. Search is the second. Browse features is only 4%. 82% of our overall traffic on shorts is shorts feed. There is some. It's very small, but about 1% comes from Google search even, which is very interesting. There are suggested videos that do lead some traffic, but again, that's 0.5%. So if you really look at the 80-20 rule, it's actually kind of interesting. It literally is the 80-20 rule. 82% of our traffic is coming from the shorts feed. And Viper, I'm not sure if you know if I can dig into that stat more, but that's just what I see. And so that's, I have to trust Todd in saying, I don't know if those bridges are happening or not. I guess what I could say is that, you know, 29,000 new subscribers have come in with, from shorts. That's cool. And then I could maybe go to audience and start thinking about returning viewers versus new viewers and try to discern where did those viewers originally start from. But it's a really good question you ask. Macro, this is what I know. It's worth doing. Like, I think I like to look at my data and at least discern, should we keep doing this? Is this worth doing? And admittedly, we have not had a significant breakout short 
in that time. Uh, Nolan Molt on the team does have one short that went viral, 7.4 million views. That was actually last year, though. But all the shorts this year have been like kind of unimpressive. But I think I'm looking at the big data in a six-month time period. We grew 30,000 subscribers. Some of this traffic's coming from search. It's worth it to me. It just makes sense. I mean, 30,000 subscribers, definitely worth posting two shorts a week. And Thick Media is also a unique channel. It is kind of topic-based, search-based, problem-based. And so what is interesting about those shorts is that they are also not just being viewed this week, though, but there is like an evergreen nature to them. I've even heard Gary Vaynerchuk mention, for example, wine content and YouTube search related to sort, uh, shorts. Not a lot of people think about that. But the fact that you can make the simple, a fast vertical 60 second video on a hyper specific, say it was like a wine or a particular wine tasting or a particular topic, we're getting traffic from Google on our YouTube shorts. And so that's a very under talked about angle that shorts could be discovered in search, but by far the shorts feed is where the action is. Definitely. So as I look at some of the VidIQ analytics, I can see that some of our long form videos are suggesting our shorts. So there is some type of bridge there. Now, I can't really tell if it's going the other way as far as short form videos or long form videos being suggested from short, but at least we know that the bridge is working at least the one way. Long form videos are suggesting short. So there is something going on there. And that's very good because for the longest, it's been just a total disconnect. But now that YouTube is working on connecting them, that will definitely give creators more calls to investigate and maybe experiment with doing short form content. Now, the other thing that's important to know, Sean, is that anytime YouTube makes a change like this, this is not something that's going to happen immediately. Usually when YouTube makes a change to the platform, it happens over a course of years. I remember four years ago when I was live streaming on my main channel, posting long form content at the same time on the same channel, the lives and the long form videos just did not communicate well and it completely screwed up my analytics. And we let YouTube know that this is a problem because the algorithm is not really analyzing the live stream content properly against the long form. So it's something that YouTube has spent the last few years working on. And now today I can recommend creators, you can do live streams on the uh, same channel as long form regular video because the analytics work much better than they did four years ago. So these changes do happen over a course of years, but it's nice to know that they themselves, YouTube, have announced that the bridge is out there. They're constantly working on it. And short and long, we'll talk to each other. And that can only be nothing but a big benefit for creators moving forward. 100%. Absolutely. I want to get to some of the stuff that's going on with Think Media. So how long have you been uploading to the uh, Think Media channel? You know, the first time I uploaded to the Think Media channel, I think was in 2010. And uh, at the time, I had four channels total, which is a horrible idea. I was very distracted, spread thin, but that was when I first uploaded. And there's some early videos, even where I'd be on my drive to work, I would mount my Droid X Ooh. phone to the dashboard of my Ford Taurus. And I drove from Marysville, Washington to Everett, Washington to wait tables at Red Robin. And I would record videos on the way. And some of those early videos were how to build a video editing PC. And I just kind of would share content while driving, trim down the edit. What's interesting is that I was answering specific questions back then, and those videos did all right, and I just was getting started. And I think the key viper was I was I was really inconsistent for about five years because I was distracted with other channels, testing and experimenting, doing client work as well, working on other people's channels and video production and YouTube channel management for others. 
So it wasn't really until 2015 and then very seriously in 2016 that I went all in with the energy that Think Media has today. Of course, that's been multiplied into multiple content creators and all of that, but it's really been a run from 2016 to 2022 and beyond that we've been pushing hard on Think Media and really scaling up our content, our strategy. And I went from being a solo creator now to a team of creators on the channel. Okay, so that's where I wanna go next. From the time that you really started going hard with Think Media, I think you said that 2016, how long did it take before you realized that you would need help with the channel? Because I think that's something that a lot of creators wrestle with, deciding when they need to hire help. So how long did it take for you to come to that conclusion? I think that a lesson, or at least my mindset on that, was to hire help as soon as possible, to hire help before you're ready, and to hire help before you can afford it. Mm. I think a really good book that creators would benefit from reading, but I'll just summarize, is called The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. And it's the entrepreneur myth is what it stands for. And what it suggests is that just because you're good at the thing doesn't mean you're good at running a business. The example he uses is like a cupcake shop. You love making cupcakes. You're good at the frosting. You can make the best cupcakes. You've been practicing making cupcakes. The problem is when you open up a cupcake shop, you now have a profit and loss statement and bookkeeping you have to do. You now have to have somebody run the cash register. In fact, eventually you can't even make the cupcakes because now you need to run a team or think about these other aspects of your business. You may need to hire a contractor to paint the outside and a logo designer to design a logo, or you need to do all those things yourself if you're bootstrapping your business. So I think creators really find themselves in the same spot. And what the book reveals is that just because you're a technician and a technician is the person who makes the cupcakes for the YouTube creator, you're the person who's making the videos, the person who I've heard it called the dancing bear. Like you got to get on camera, you got to dance, you got to email the brands, you got to sign up for the affiliate program, optimize the description, open up Canva or Photoshop and do your thumbnail. You're doing all of the things. I think just knowing the nature of YouTube, the best mindset you could possibly have is that I need to get help immediately. Now, the objection is, well, I have no money. Like, I'm not ready yet. Money's not coming in. But all I'm suggesting is that you have that mindset. You know, there's another book I love. It's called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And, and what Robert Kiyosaki would teach was that his poor dad would say, we can't afford that. And his rich dad would ask, how can we afford that? And poor dad was making a statement that shut down possibility. The rich dad was asking a question that opened up possibility and opportunity and caused your brain to get creative. So if you start thinking you need help from the beginning, like I think back when Benji and I wrote YouTube Secrets, we wrote a whole chapter on team. Team could be talking to a spouse or a partner or a cousin or a brother to say, hey, can you watch the kids on Saturday? Because I want to work on my YouTube channel. You may not pay them. You may pay them in Chick-fil-A that night or something because they're helping you, but it's a different mindset. You're not just being the technician, the cupcake maker. You're being more of a business owner that's thinking about how can I delegate? How can I get my time back? How can I, again, hire a team? And the final thing I'll say is that as soon as I went all in on Think Media, October 2015, and by October 2016, affiliate by January the next year, having gone through the holidays, talking about tech, doing Amazon affiliate marketing, essentially, and making tech videos, camera reviews, lens reviews, lighting videos, all the above, I had replaced 
all of the income I was making either from freelancing or my previous job. And the second mindset was the same thing, reinvesting every single dollar back into my business and nowhere else. So what can also happen is as soon as someone goes even part-time or full-time, they think this is amazing. Now YouTube's giving me some money. I'm going to live it up a little bit. And by all means, do whatever you want with your money. But it's like, I made it. Now I'm going to spend this on you know stuff I want to buy. I might upgrade my living. Now I can finally afford that car payment. Now I can move to a nicer house. To this day, my wife, who's the co-founder in terms of our business, she runs the books. We have continued to keep our lifestyle expenses as low as possible to reinvest dollars into people, team, systems, equipment, software. So uh, to answer your question, your short question in a long way, Viper, is is it's a mindset. I think it's the mindset of you got to think like a business owner even before you are one. You got to think about building a team even before you can afford one. And then you should also invest every single dollar into, I believe, scaling that team because it, when you have the right vision and delayed gratification, I think it's what can help you grow quickly. And it's certainly what helped Think Media grow quickly because literally from day one, I was already thinking about, I need a team bigger than myself. I got to blow up. I cannot do the solopreneur thing. I have got to build something that is sustainable and that can scale. And so that was my mindset. Absolutely. So somewhere along that path, you did hire help and you started having different creators show themselves on the Think Media channel. So I'm curious because I know as a YouTube viewer back in the day, I always thought it was weird when I got used to watching a creator run their channel for so long, but then out of the blue, they had other creators come on their channel because they were hiring help and doing things like that. So I'm curious, how did you prepare your audience to accept people not Sean Cattle showing their face on the channel? Because that's kind of a joke for a viewer that's so used to you over the years, but now you got help and you have help on screen. So how did you prepare your viewers to adjust to that change? Yeah, I think there's two approaches here. The approach that I did was I first created content with the creators that were coming up as opposed to them just instantly showing up out of nowhere and being solo. So, uh -huh, okay. you know, first of all, I knew Omar, who I believe was the first person seen on Think Media. I'd known him for years. We had a big history and that's a huge key. It wasn't just some stranger. We, you know, knew him for two weeks and it was like, hey, you want to be a content creator on the channel? There's a lot of relationship, a lot of trust. Furthermore, he was also shooting, filming and editing so he also was understanding our brand, understanding our style, and we had a great relationship. He was able to kind of absorb, you know, the DNA and the vibe, but we were able to work closely together. Proximity helped as well. We both live and still live in Vegas. And so we did videos together first. You know, I think I learned this. There's a real estate guy and sales guy called Grant Cardone, and he started a show called Young Hustlers. Uh, he had five shows on his channel, a show with his wife a solo show, an interview show. And he also had a show called Young Hustlers with Jared Glant. And one of the things that I noticed, I mean, it was something I observed was he and Jared co-taught or they were co-hosted Young Hustlers for like a year. And then eventually it was just Jared. But by that time, people had built an affinity. Maybe they liked Jared more than Grant. And they had built trust, saw he knew what he was talking about. And so there was like a progressive onboarding of viewers. And it was a, the slow handing off, if you will, of the baton. Dave Ramsey does something similar. He's been working on his succession plan. He has multiple creators and they co-host the Dave Ramsey call-in show so that you get to know Rachel Cruz, who happens to be his daughter, or Ken Coleman. 
and they are on the show together. So you meet Dave and you meet a new person. And what happens, I believe, is affinity with that other creator can build not in a week, not in a month, but actually hopefully over months, maybe even years. So I think that that was my approach, doing things together before they were doing things solo. But one disclaimer that I'd want to encourage is you're absolutely right. From your point of view, you build a connection with a creator. If they just were to change out the creator, it might offend you and it might actually might lose you as the viewer for sure. But I also think people are overly afraid. Right. I think that fear of that happening keeps people from making progress and they can get stuck in a cycle that will lead to burnout. What they fear is they're like, man, I'm going to lose some people if I make a drastic change. But my question is, what are you going to lose if you don't make that change? We've all read the articles about burnout, about how creators feel like they're stuck. Like if they don't keep being the dancing bear, if they don't keep pumping out content and, and making their viewers happy, like it's this endless grind and it never ends. I was trying to look further down the road and I was willing to accept if people thought, oh man, Sean sold out. Whereas he, I only want to watch Sean. Great. We lost some subscribers or we lost some viewers. Oh man, I don't like this Omar guy. Okay, fine. What I learned, some people do. And what I also learned, especially when you're growing a channel, is there's also people who are constantly discovering you. You know, I think that we should always honor, listen to, and connect with the audience who made us originally. They're, they're the very people who liked our videos and supported us up to a point. But I would argue, I would argue this, your personal health, your life vision, your YouTube channel vision, your company vision is superior to any individual sharing their opinion in your comments. So if someone's in their comments saying, man, I liked it the way it used to be, everyone's always going to feel that. If a restaurant redecorates their interior, someone's going to be upset. If you change your product line, someone's going to be upset. And as a business owner, you have to take those courageous and bold moves, I think, as a YouTube creator who's maybe building hopefully an empire and not just a 15 minutes of fame channel. Soft heart, you have a heart of empathy. I get it. I'm sorry. You you might only want to learn from Sean, but I also want to raise a family. I've also dealt with some health challenges and some chronic pain issues. I couldn't sustain the pace that I was on. And the cool thing is that because of embracing and platforming other creators, It has allowed me to continue to thrive and honor my commitments to my faith, my family. And it's also helped me honor my commitment to, I don't want to stand on a big platform. I want to be a platform for others. And so with massive respect to Nolan and Omar and Heather, and they could all build their own thing and make it on their own. At the same time, I believe we're stronger together. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. We are building something that can all honor. And I think any individual creator knows this. They're like, man, that solo creator path is freaking tough. We all have a value of family. Our theme this year is at our best, the cadence of rest and content creation. And not only are we posting 300 pieces of content a week right now across all platforms, we are also really not working nights or weekends and just kind of working at a very sustainable pace, taking federal holidays off, two flex days this year. We took our whole team to Disneyland this year. So we built something that I think takes more people than the individual creator to build out that balanced life. And so all of that thought went into the very hard, but also very strategic decisions I've made to build Think Media and the way that I have. Have people been upset along the way? For sure. By the way, have people upset every day on YouTube? Absolutely. 
YouTube comments are a dumpster fire. You're always going to find somebody dissatisfied there. And I think with soft heart and empathy always in those contexts, I've got to make decisions based on my family, my kids, my team, my future, my health. And that's where the real motivation comes from. I love how you said that because ultimately, as you alluded to, you have to run your business in the best for you. You can't let any outside factors dictate how you run your business because those outside factors don't have your family in mind. They don't affect how your bills get paid and all this other stuff. So ultimately, it's nice to have a community and have them be passionate about what you're doing, but you can't completely run your business off of what they want and need per se because you have to think about you. You have to be able to sustain that. It's all about that longevity as you alluded to. So love the way you said that. This episode of Tube Talk is brought to you by the vidIQ mobile app. You can download it for free on the Android or iOS app stores. And it's here to help you do things like keep track of your competition, research your next video idea, optimize videos you've already posted, and more, all on the go. This is the perfect app to have literally in your back pocket while you're out and about and you find yourself with a few free extra minutes. Having the opportunity to sit down and optimize your latest video or research ideas for your upcoming video can be a game changer and save you a bunch of time as you work to create more YouTube content. Again, you can download the vidIQ mobile app for free on Android or iOS. Just search for vidIQ. Throughout several times in the podcast, you have alluded to books that you read and you live by. I want to give you a chance to talk about your recent book, the updated second edition of YouTube Secrets. So what is new in this book that we maybe didn't get in the first edition? Yeah, so uh, Benji and I just released the second edition of YouTube Secrets. I appreciate the plug and the chance to talk about it. You know, the first book was written in 2018. I believe it's the best-selling YouTube strategy book in the world. We're at like 80,000 copies sold, 2,350 reviews on Amazon, Ooh. and we've gotten incredible feedback. But with the book being four years old, there was a couple of things. One, the first part of the book is an unbreakable framework. At least we feel that way, and, and YouTube would have to turn into a Ready Player One environment that is entirely different than it is today for this framework to break. But that was the seven C's of YouTube success. And that was, you know, courage, you got to start, clarity, what's your channel about, who's it for, set up your channel, connect with your community, figure out a way to generate cash, and then be consistent. And so that really hasn't changed. But what we changed was the stories, the case studies, the stats, the details. What did change significantly, though, was a few things. We added three new chapters, 90 new pages. We completely rewrote social media. I mean, that's a whole conversation in itself. I actually think creators should be very careful about getting distracted by social media early on. For example, I mentioned we post 300 pieces of content a week and we're incredibly active on all the platforms, but that's Sean today. I do not think that is the best strategy for a new creator because I think it's actually impossible to be effective on multiple platforms as a solo creator with a full-time job, a family in school or other things you're juggling. There's really three seasons we could talk about that. So we, re we entirely deleted and redid the social media chapter. We added a new YouTube features chapter talking all about shorts, community tab, YouTube stories, YouTube live, YouTube kids app, just different things happening in regards to new features. And we changed all the stuff about YouTube SEO. I mean, I think a lot has changed in regards to YouTube SEO. So kind of the ranking chapter. The other one's the perfect video recipe, which is really a proprietary process that I created on the big idea, the hook, the content and the transition and a, a four-step recipe with 11 or 12 spices that can make the recipe even better so that you can ultimately hack click-through rate and average view duration. The book is crushing. It was already good, but it got really good. And that's just been the feedback in terms of the reviews, the new edition, and it's you know incredibly accessible. I think the Kindle's like four bucks. 
you know, the one audible credit if it's if you want the audiobook. Benji and I re-recorded it in a studio. We alternate chapters and then of course the physical book. So we're super excited and it's doing incredibly well. I'm kind of blown away by how well received the second edition has been. And uh, there's a lot of new stuff in there for really this next decade is going to be the best decade on YouTube. We wanted the blueprint to be ready for crushing this next decade on YouTube. Definitely, man. And I will definitely have a link down in the show notes for you, you all who want to check out his book. Definitely go on there, get that good spicy info. Always, Sean, bring it fire for sure. So I kind of want to go backwards a little bit to another announcement that YouTube made that we haven't really touched on yet. And that probably might be a bigger announcement than the new tier for short creators to get monetized, Sean. And that is the creator music library that they have coming out at the end of the year here. At this point now, if creators want to use music that they don't have the rights or they don't own, they have a few options. You can either go through a music licensing platform like Epidemic Sound or Music Bed or something like that, or you can try to figure out what's in the YouTube audio library and use some of that stuff for free. Or if you use music illegally per se and you didn't get permission, the artist would copyright claim your video and take your revenue. But with the announcement YouTube made a month ago, introducing the creative music library, you will now as a creator have the opportunity to have access to a catalog of music and a library. And either you could buy the license to use it in a video, however you see fit without losing any of the revenue. Or if you don't want to buy the license outright, you will enter into a revenue split sharing model with the artist. So you'll get a percentage of the revenue from the video and then the artist will get a percentage of that revenue from the video. Curious to get your thoughts on the creative music announcement, Sean, because I think this is going to be major for all creators, not just short creators. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that it's really cool to see this evolution because I think we all agree, whether it's fair use, copyright, music licensing, music distribution, it's a pretty wild world. And the old paradigm of whether copywritten content in general, if you if you pivot to like gaming, for example, you have some game creators that are like, of course stream our game, use our game. That just means more awareness, more promotion. And then you also have some brands. Nintendo has kind of been known to be one that's like, you're not even allowed oh, to yeah. stream our games, which is just a weird <clears throat> mindset. And of course, it's their freedom to think that way. But I do think that the most uh, evolved and in, in my opinion, intelligent mindset is like, listen, the more the merrier, like the more awareness, the more... Yeah ears, I should say. You have eye, eyes and ears of, of people discovering an artist, getting attention to a new musical act, a musical artist. Of course, the key is that that wouldn't be pirated, but that there could be a win-win. I think technology is finding a way to bridge that. And you know, YouTube has had the content ID. So that has been a very interesting, you know, evolving piece of software. Maybe it's bigger than software. It's a whole system. It's a whole AI. And ultimately, this is just exciting because I hopefully it makes a win-win-win. I mean, now people want to have popular, relevant, mainstream music in their videos. Creators in the past have tried to hack that. Sometimes they change the pitch, change the speed of the song. They try to only use seven seconds, which was a myth. If you only use second, seven seconds, it's okay, or it's not going to get flagged. The truth is it's either flagged or not. I've been creating videos for over 10 years, you know, and so every once in a while, I'll get a notification from like some video I posted like 10 years ago. It's like, hey, by the way, we just noticed this song. Of course, that's maybe an indie artist that like finally uploaded their song. So the content ID could scan all the videos to find it. All this stuff. It's been a, a huge evolution. So I just agree with you that I think 
it's exciting. I think that it can make creators have a platform of more creativity. I know that many vloggers or people who love editing the music would love to use a particular type of music that they felt limited on before. And so hopefully it just becomes a win, 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 win in terms of artists making money. YouTube, of course, is in the middle there getting a piece of the pie and then the creator being able to use a whole new folder of music that can enhance their edits and their overall creativity. Yeah, and I love how you talked about how it's a win-win because you have indie artists out there who like small critics, they want to get their name out there. And now with the creative music library, they have a chance to put their music in there and have maybe bigger creators use their music in a video and boom, their popularity flow because a bigger creator used their music. And such and such, you know, a smaller creator, they might be able to use a trending song now and have their video flow because they're using trending music and all that stuff. So this is a win-win for everybody. Obviously, like you said, it comes at a cost. You just can't do what you want for free. You got to pay the license or pay the artist a split of your revenue. But I think this gives creators more versatility to how they add music and use it in their videos. This is the way for the artist because they now have a chance to get their music out there to more and more people. And it's just going to change the way content is done over the next 10, 20 years. Love to see what creatives will do with it when it gets widely available later this year, man. Do you have any plans to think media for using music uh, in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing I would also say that is important to note on this is I, I think that hopefully this brings a little bit more balance to the system. Yeah. And what I mean would be the rev share option. I think where YouTube's kind of broken is where even in fair use, somebody might use a clip in fair use of a 25 minute video and the copyright owner, the one who at least is claiming to be the copyright owner flags it and gets monetization for the entire video. Still probably not legitimate if the creator used it in full fair use, but then you have to dispute it. Wait, you maybe miss out on revenue in the short term, but even more so the thing is, it's not a, it's not a full black or white issue. It's not an all or nothing issue. Even if that portion is potentially copywritten, all the other creativity, all the other parts of the video, if there was some kind of algorithm to say, hey, there should be a split here, as opposed to I get all of the revenue for this one little moment. I think the same goes for music to a point. I think what the artist might be saying, right, is in the past, it was they flag it. They're like, we get all of the revenue from this video. And you're like, my likeness is in it. All my creativity is in it. I travel, I got on a plane, I did all these edits. You were only in a portion, there's dialogue, there's ed there's education, there's all these other things that could happen. And respect, I used a portion of your song. So I think the share is the key word, like revenue sharing, that now it could be that win-win and it doesn't have to be all or nothing. For sure, I think media, in answer to your question, we are excited to experiment with this and also just see how it evolves. And I think my perspective is also like, just wanting to know, as it's been in the past with YouTube, this is going to need to evolve as well. Will there probably be frustration points here? Sure. Will it be completely perfect when it's rolled out immediately? Not a chance. I love seeing progress and I love to give people more of the benefit of the doubt. I think there can sometimes be too much animosity created like YouTube's a big corporate you know, entity against small creators and it's never that extreme. I think the key value going forward. I think the most important trait in this next decade, especially is going to be empathy. I think just having more empathy that, yeah, they're owned by Google. It's a massive company. Sure. But like they're trying to figure it out too, man. It's a big ship. They have a long, you know, a lot, a lot of detailed parts to sear things. And that we as creators too, of course, we want to be taken care of, but I, I bet it rolls out. Not perfect. I'm certain of that. And so I'm just excited to see the evolution. 
Yeah, I definitely agree with you. It's not going to be perfect. I mean, there's still a lot of information that we don't have right now that they have not shared with us. They say they're going to share more information in the coming weeks and, and month ahead. But I agree with you. When it does roll out, it's definitely not going to be perfect. It's going to need to evolve like everything else that YouTube rolls out. And we'll just have to see what happens over the days and weeks ahead when they do finally put it out there. So I want to go back to a conversation that me and you had a year ago. So I don't know if you remember, but me and you hosted a clubhouse room together. And I had you come and talk about YouTube at that point. And we ended up talking about gear. And you made a very good point about when creators should consider upgrading their gear. I don't know if you remember the conversation, but I just want you to talk about how you feel about when creators should upgrade their gear, because you made a hell of a point last year about that. I just wanted to put it out on the podcast for my listeners there, because I think that creators, sometimes they get that gas, that gear acquisition syndrome, and they might not necessarily need the latest and greatest gear, but they see it out there. They get the dollar signs in their eyes or whatever, and they want the new gear and they go spend money that they necessarily don't have to spend or they're not ready to spend. So can you give us your perspective, Sean, on when you feel like creators should upgrade their gear? Yeah, a couple things. I, I just, as you were asking again, I wrote down three S's. The first one is speed. I think that one of the reasons you should upgrade your gear is when it can speed up your workflow. Yeah. I think that one of the most, a lot of people think about it, but I think it's underappreciated. Almost everybody thinks, what is the new camera I should buy? What is the best camera for YouTube? And I actually don't think that should be your first question. I think actually when the best investments in your gear would be a laptop or a computer yep. because the bottleneck of speed for content creation is going to probably be your computer and your software. You know, we are an equal opportunities channel. We have Omar talking about Premiere. We have Nolan talking about Final Cut. We have Heather talking about one of the mobile editing softwares that I'm forgetting right now. We have Omar doing LumaFusion. So we're trying to hit them all. And, um, you know, one of the best, simplest, I think, upgrades is to go Mac M1 and is to go Final Cut. And I know Premiere is also integrating uh, speed with that as well. But I think the fastest editing solution on the planet for the average creator is a Mac with an M1 chip and Final Cut. And so just the thought is maybe to get less geeky is just how long does it take you to get a video done on YouTube? And what are the sticking points on that journey? Is it take you hours to export a video? If you then notice you made a mistake, does it take you hours more? If you're dragging through your footage, is it really slow? Is your computer crashing? Anything that can upgrade your speed, that could also then include dedicated gear that's just set up. So all you have to do is switch, flip a switch and you're ready to record quickly. It could be a mount that goes on your tripod where you put your clipboard with your notes or an iPad with your notes so that it can help you create content more quickly. Rather than talking about the specific thing, I think the question would be, when should you upgrade your gear? It's, will this gear help me go faster? And under the idea that time is money, you're really thinking through the investment of what you're investing in. Like, will this help me go faster? If I can upload more videos, I'm going to get to monetization sooner. I'm already at monetization. I'm going to get more YouTube ad revenue. The other ways I'm earning money, that's going to increase. And so that would be number one for me. Any thoughts on that one? No, yeah, like it's just like we talked about a year ago. Anything that can help you be more efficient, more faster, is definitely a time that you should upgrade. Just last year, I got the M1 Mac MacBook Pro, one of the top of the line Apple computers, and I got it because I knew it would speed up my editing and my creation process. And it didn't come cheap, but again, if I could put out more content and it can make me more money, then eventually over time, it will pay for itself anyway. So anything that can help you put out content at a faster, more efficient clip 
it's something that you should consider for sure. I love it. Number two would be simplicity. And what I mean by that one actually is the problem with upgrading gear is sometimes you get a fancier new thing, but it also makes your workflow more complex and it kind of ties into number one, it slows you down. Complexity is the enemy of execution. So if, for example, this is what comes to mind as an illustration. If like you were recording some kind of video podcast and you had to connect like a headphone splitter to like a Zoom H4n into two mics and you had cloud lifters on there because the gain was messed up and it was just kind of all gnarly. And then you had to set up and tear that down because you do it in your kitchen. If you could simplify your workflow, and this actually, I would argue, is a point to not upgrade your gear. Upgrading your gear comes with other consequences. How long is it going to take you to learn the new gear? How much more complexity is going to be happening? Oh, I have these new amazing video files. Great. But because they're ungraded raw, now I can't afford a laptop, but it just broke my whole editing flow because the video files are you know harder to process and I haven't thought through, again, the entire workflow. So these kind of go hand in hand. Number one, speed. Number two, simplicity. It'd be like, when in doubt, try and keep your workflow as simple as possible. Done is better than perfect. A video that's not the best looking actual visual quality, the actual production value, but that's done and on the internet is better than one that you're endlessly polishing because you've overdone it. And I sometimes think about this as a videographer myself, you know, especially if you don't have a team, which none of us do when starting. And even as a freelancer, I remember when I was shooting weddings and I wanted to shoot wedding videos, like some of the pros that I would study. In those days, there was Vimeo and I would study this brand called Still Motion. Well, they always had like two, three, four, five shooters. So they might have a dedicated kind of B-roll shooter that would be on like a slider. And I remember I started to invest in this stuff. So I invested in a slider. These days, there was no cool gimbals like today. This was all about the uh, glide cams. You know what I mean? You had to balance that thing. To this day, I don't think I ever got that thing balanced. You know, what I, it's freaking impossible. And it was a whole art form. Like not only did you have to balance it, but you had to be like a ballerina to even keep that thing stable and steady. And so what I realized was, okay, I started to upgrade this gear because I did want better production value. But it made things more complex and I didn't have time to like, I had quick release plates and the whole deal, but I don't have time to balance my gimbal and get it ready. Like I had to shoot the bride walking down the aisle and get the kiss. Like I could have get the slider going. Now I did use some of that stuff the day ahead of time to shoot the venue, to shoot the beach, to shoot the boats, to get some establishing shots. Punchline being though, as I learned that just endless more pieces of kit in my bag did not necessarily make my product better. It just made it more stressful. Whenever I travel with a GoPro, I want to throw up. Like I'm like, okay, do I have all my batteries? Do I have the flotation device? Do I have the SD cards? Do I have the flotation device and the arm? Because my wife and I are going to go jet skiing. And then inevitably I'll get there and I'll be like, I don't have <laughs> the screw that connects the GoPro to the flotation device to the arm so that we could go jet skiing and I get down, you know, and I'm like, what was the point of this whole trip? Just the idea that in certain workflows, there's endless pieces that you can add onto your setup. It's not necessarily a good thing. When in doubt, keep it simple. And the simpler you could keep it, the complexity is the enemy of execution. If you have a simple workflow that causes as least friction as possible from idea to execution of uploading your YouTube video, you have the highest chance of success. The more friction points in your workflow, the more chance that you're going to get stuck 
not finish the edit, get discouraged, end up with 14 hours of footage on your hard drive that hasn't been edited and no videos posted to your YouTube channel, no growth, no money. Definitely. All right, so let me get you out of here on this. Given the current state of YouTube with everything that we have talked about in the podcast, with the recent announcement, with the emergence of short-form content, Sean Cannell being the man behind Think Media, what advice would you give new and up-and-coming creators today who are just starting out on their journey, given everything that we know that's happening right now? You know, the advice I'd give people today, and thanks again for having me on, and I appreciate your kind words, is I think that a lot of times creators that want to grow are focusing on the wrong things. And they're focusing Mm -hmm. on important things, but for sure, the first question is not what camera should I buy? Your smartphone is good enough. The first question is not, man, how do I make good thumbnails? You're not going to get a good click through it without one, but that's not your most important question. It's not how do I write titles? And I would argue to say it's not even how to make videos. Although again, if you don't do these things well, you're never going to succeed on YouTube. I think where people really miss it is they're not starting with the right topic. This goes twofold. I think the selection, the channel topic you select, your niche or your niche, it's such a massive decision. It just will very much affect the level of success that you ultimately experience. One person put it this way, it's like starting a business. And do you want to try to, if you're in a boat, it's much easier to paddle with the current than it is to try to paddle upstream. Selecting the right topic for your channel at the intersection of your passion, yes, but also of your skill set, your proficiency, and also at uh, that could be profitable because people want to go full time. They want to make a living. It's a big deal. And then beyond that, it's selecting the right topics of videos. There's a million videos you can make after we're done with this podcast. You and I both know there's literally 10 million different videos we can make next. We could talk about a podcast solution. We could talk about YouTube tips. We could interview a guest. We could interview 10,000 different guests. We could review a book. We could do a vlog. There's like so much different things you could do. I think learning the skill of identifying the best possible topics that you should be making is going to be your shortest path to growth. And to give the listener some handles on that, if you're a new creator, I believe long form is still the answer. And by long form, that could be three and a half minutes, five minutes, eight minutes, 12 minutes. What I mean is a standard YouTube video. And I believe that you should answer specific questions when starting. I see so many people upload 10, 20, 50, 100 videos, and they're titled and they're about all kinds of different things, but they're not answering specific questions that viewers are actually looking for. I understand suggested is a lot bigger than search, but 65% of people still go to YouTube to answer specific questions that they're looking for. Search is still the second largest search engine in the world. And search is the gateway for new creators to get discovered and ultimately really tap into the power of suggested. So the one thing I would leave you with is on your next couple of videos, really get clear on who is your channel for and what are the specific questions they want to know about. Make videos about those. One question, one video. Keep it simple. You're going to be stunned. If your video is starting with how to X, it's a good way to start it because there's some value based in that video. If your video is starting with my trip to Disneyland, You and a million other people are trying to just show your trip to Disneyland. It's going to be tough to get discovered on that. If your video says Minecraft playthrough, you know, something, 
Um, you and a million other people are trying to do that. But if you answer specific questions that have the viewer in mind in solving a, a problem for the viewer or entertaining the viewer or showing the viewer something that they are actually looking for. And of course, vidIQ is an incredible tool for discovering those insights, whether that's keyword research, whether that's daily video ideas, whether that's the trending, paying attention to what's trending in a certain niche to inspire what types of videos, topics you should be creating. I think that's everything. And I think for the new creator, simply making videos about the right topics will actually get you a lot more success, even while you're still learning how to edit, still learning how to communicate, still learning how to do all these pieces because you're making videos people actually want to watch and not just random videos, random topics that people are not interested in. <laughs> so much fire dropping by my man, Sean Cannell. Always a pleasure having you on the podcast, my dude. Thank you so, so much for making time. Again, if you guys want to follow him in his F place, all his information will be down in the show notes. Definitely go check out Think Media, read the book, and get some of this YouTube knowledge that is flowing out here. Thank you guys for listening to another episode of Tube Talk. Be kind, be safe, and I will catch you guys next week on Tube Talk presented by Viz IQ. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tube Talk brought to you by VidIQ. Head over to vidiq.com slash tube talk for today's show notes and previous episodes. Enjoy the rest of your video making day.